0: this week on the Backtable Podcast.
1: I think that that's how you have to build IR from the ground up when you're coming into a place with no IR. But even if you were to show up in a small practice, I think the similar things apply that you have to be grateful for those little things and do them, not just adequately, but take the time to do them well, because it's your reputation is what gives you your practice. It's not your skill. No one has any idea how good or bad an IR you, but they are convinced that their patients will tell them I spend a lot of time talking to them every one of my consults for a complex issue is an hour that I block out of my day where I can talk with them about my procedures and other things and everything so they never feel rushed so that in my mind when they go back to their referring oncologist or surgeon they they have reasons to brag about me and the key is you just got to put in the time and effort and you know that you're going to get delayed gratification
0: Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community.
1: Now, a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Minimize vessel trauma, dissections, and the need for bailout stenting above or below the knee with a chocolate PTA balloon. The balloon's unique nitinol constraining structure creates pillows and grooves that provide a predictable, uniform, and atraumatic dilatation. Learn more about the product details and safety information at medtronic.com peripheral. Now, back to the episode. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host today, and I'm joined by Doug Hydley today. We're going to talk about practice building. Doug, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So remind
1: me where you are, Doug. So I am a uh, one-man operation out of Augusta Health, which is a uh, community hospital about uh, 35, 40 minutes down the road from University of Virginia and kind of central Western Virginia. And um, been here for, since I graduated fellowship two years ago. So a little bit over two years and have been enjoying it and and trying to bring IR to rural Virginia. Right on. Uh, Remind our listeners where you trained. I did my residency at Brown. Uh, Jason Anachelli was my mentor. And he was right. one of a, the earliest, I think, back table guests, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, he was early. Yeah, Jason's great. He, he gave him a lot of credit for how he turned out, which is you know good and bad. And uh, <laughs> then I went to a fellowship at University of Washington, where I worked with a ton of great people. I know you've had Jeff Chick yep. on here, I think, a couple of times. Yeah, lots. Of. And um, I got out uh, right when the pandemic was, you know, in the first swing of it. So that was uh, that was how I trained and finished up.
0: Man, that's interesting. we could do a whole entire topic on practice building during the pandemic yes <laughs> so why virginia are you are you from Virginia?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. i uh went to high school in Charlottesville almore High, and um parents still live here. My sister is uh lives up in d c and um you know honestly, I wasn't trying to get back here. I was looking all over the Pacific Northwest. My wife and I sure. loved our time in Seattle and we were actually trying to find a job out there but um to be honest, I looked around and met some really great people, a lot of different interesting groups, but man, you pay a premium in terms of what you give up to to be in Pacific Northwest or uh, I know. very high demand areas. You're, you give up a lot yeah. of salary and benefits and other things that you know they'll, they can pay you less because you want to be there so badly. And we just couldn't find anything that made sense for us in the Pacific Northwest. And so we expanded our search and I started interviewing in kind of over Virginia and in the South and... Again, a couple of places, nice places, had a couple of offers I was thinking about, but nothing quite, nothing quite jumped to me that I really wanted to, to take advantage of. And then I got a call one day from Scott Just, who's the medical, uh, the, sorry, the president of Augusta Health, the physician's group. And he said that he'd heard about me and he wanted to talk to me about being the first IR at Augusta Health and opening IR services for them. This was, I think in January of 2020. So Pandemic was looming, but hadn't quite hit yet, and that's why that's how I even considered August Health. I didn't apply there. I didn't see there. Yeah, uh, they had a post on ACR. It was one of those ones that looks terrible. It's like
0: yeah. need IR
1: for thyroid biopsies and arthrograms, right. paracentesis, thoracentesis. Uh, I found that after the fact. I'd, I'd never seen it until actually I'd already accepted right. the job. And then I saw the terrible post that they had over at ACR. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, how'd they pitch it to you? I mean, it's really cool that they found you. Which, you know, first of all, I didn't even ask, like, how did they find you?
1: I think it was word of mouth that uh, I had interviewed in a couple other places in Virginia. And there aren't that many IRs open up shop here. And uh, I think my name somehow got to them through word of mouth. And they just reached out to me directly. And I remember the call. It was just kind of took me by surprise. And I was kind of flattered. You know, you're a fellow. I was on a rotation at the VA. I get this call from the president of a medical group asking me to consider (laughs) coming to start an IR practice. I was like, oh, oh yes. uh Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. I was so excited, even though I didn't really think about what that meant at the time. I was just so excited that someone was looking for me. That's that. They kind of had me hook, line, and sinker right there.
0: (laughs) absolutely and you know it's easy to make an argument for the location you know it uh and as you said you know there there are a lot of benefits to taking a practice in a smaller market uh, particularly in terms of salary I mean, they you know they they need to be able to offer you a lot to get you there so you know i I know it it certainly had to have been exciting to be actively recruited but you know you're coming out of a very high-end training program how did they, you know, how are they able to pitch this to you and, and get you on board where, you know, clearly you were going to be, you know, at least at the very beginning, would be taking a step down from the level of IR you were practicing?
1: Oh, yeah. That was, it was a very interesting conversation. They were very upfront. And I give Scott Just right. and the administration of gust Health a lot of credit. You know, no admin's perfect, but they were, they were very upfront. They said, we, don't know how to make IR happen. We know we want it because the number one reason we're transferring patients is a lack of IR services. They yeah. had one or two radiologists who would do a small subset of uh, the procedures, sure. mostly kind of straightforward CT biopsies and some fluoroscopic to work, you know, peristoris, very small stuff, right. but they're, most of their, um, in quotes, IR services were, you know, midlines, pick lines, stuff that is light. calling light IR is generous, you know, things yeah. that we don't really Wake up every morning dying to do. And right. they were very upfront, like, that's what we have. But we would love for you, and they, they said we'd love for you to, to bring whatever your skills are to us. Yeah. You just have to help us do that. And I, I said maybe the second thing out of my mouth was, I do not want to be in a practice where what you are talking about, what you have, that's all I do. You know, if you're going to support right. me building totally. something bigger and trying to offer services that, you know, we'd be proud to have at any academic institution, then I'm your guy. I will work to get us there. But if you want this to just be a you know, line biopsy, drain service. I said that's, that's not going to be something I can stay in long term. You know, and Scott just was like, absolutely. You you want to do tips? We'll get you the stuff to do tips. You want to do you know ablations? We'll get you stuff to do ablations. Whatever you want, you just have to come here and find the patients. And we need totally. you to do that other stuff, but we'd like you to build towards whatever your vision is. And they kind of gave me carte blanche, and I was again very flattered. But if to brag on Jason a little bit, when I was at Brown, Jason was incredible about teaching me not just the you know IR cases but he taught me about you know billing and charge capture and how you dictate wow. so it makes it easier for coders to pull out and make sure you get them you know optimal capture from what you're doing and he did so much to teach me about what it means to have the IR business and practice not just the cases that I naively thought I knew enough to just get started and be like, yeah, whatever it's, you know, I'm just, I'll be fine. I, I, I'm good. Jason, you know, he talked to me a bunch Up, I'll be fine. And, uh, I, I felt like I had a good handle on it, but there was just so much to learn, uh, in oh the first God. year. And even now I'm still learning plenty of stuff. It's really, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's I still
0: animal. seem like I, I, do something i've never done at least every other month uh yeah it's remarkable how much like it, you know you see those charts of like confidence level and how much you know like I, I don't think i've ever been as overconfident as i was like stepping foot in practice the day after fellowship <laughs> it took me oh my god yeah. a good two years to realize how little you know you actually know
1: yeah i think <laughs> i think i've i've i think i hit that kind of nader where I, at least I started to think I feel like a little more competent recently, but yeah, I've been, yeah. from getting started until a few months ago, it was basically my confidence was just this slow, steady decrease being yeah, like, just absolutely. learning how much I, I could never prepare for or know for and things that I never thought I would need to do or teach myself and, and trying to sort that all out in a hospital that, you know, still is very young in its IR practice and,
0: and has a lot of room to grow still. It's cool. So you're employed by the the hospital physician correct. group, correct? Yep,
1: I'm employed directly by the hospital, and they employ five
0: other radiologists. Okay, okay. So are you you're separate from the other radiologists? You guys aren't like in a group together. You're solo.
1: More or less, we we make some decisions. I I um, about a third of my day to day is spent on diagnostic work. I, mm-hmm. which is not a. Uh, not forced upon me i like diagnostics i'm one of those weird irs that enjoys reading and wants to keep a busy diagnostic practice but i have my own little area but there is some overlap there i'm still part of when we make decisions as a department-wide thing i'm still involved in that but but functionally i am my own island in a archipelago of radiologists, if you will.
0: The nice thing about that is that, you know, and and we've talked about this on here before, there can be challenges in practice building within, you know, a a standard IRDR group where, you know, you you basically, I mean, there's a certain amount of work that's got to be done. And, uh, you know, there can be growing pains when you go out and and you build this work, but, you know, there's a list that needs to be read. It's nice that you have some support from the hospital to do that. I mean, you're both kind of helping each other here.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I feel very happy with my colleagues. They're great about, you know, reading the list and supporting me. And when, um, every once in a while they will help pick up a para or thora or biopsy if I'm stuck in some complex case. So I've had nothing but, but good experiences with my colleagues, but at the same time, it is kind of nice to not have to fight the, how are we spending our time? IRDR wise within a group, the hospital basically says your first priority is do IR when you're not doing IR read diagnostics. So I get a lot of flexibility to take the extra time to do things like run my own little clinic and do consults and and stay involved and engaged and not feel like I'm constantly being tethered to this list. So I'm I'm super happy as an employed HR. Uh, I know it's it's definitely a mixed bag out there, but I think it's worked out great Everything for me, and I'm, I'm very happy with it.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I want to hear more in a little while about your clinic and and how you've been able to do that. That can be a challenge, uh, particularly solo. So do you cover just the one side or do you have to go anywhere else? We're just one
1: hospital. Uh, we're going to get a small outpatient imaging facility where the DR folks will do some very simple floral guided procedures, but for the most part, uh, it's a one-stop shop. Um, it's all comes to me and, and that's that.
0: So let's talk about how it worked when you got there. Was it about what it sounded like when you started, or you know, were there any real surprises? The the surprises
1: were only from my own naivete, if you will. Yeah. The administration and everyone, every step of the way, it was very clear that I should expect very little, and yeah, they will work with me to grow, but set your expectations low, and not because just because they never had IR before, they didn't have a lot of experience working with IRs and understanding how much further IR had come since about 10 years ago was the last time they had a fellowship trained IR wow affiliated with the facility through a private practice group that they were contracting at that time. So when I started it was I had five FTEs. Oh sorry, that's all I had six FTEs. I had me, I had a, a scheduler, three techs, one full-time nurse and two part-time nurses. And that's it. And originally it was like a big week was like 10 paras, a couple lungs and some thyroid biopsies, you know, maybe yep. an LP if someone was feeling spicy. <laughs> that was that's where we started.
0: And, that's where you started. Well, yeah. Let's talk about how you went from there to where you are now. Like when you got there, like I mean, first of all, just as an aside, I bet that was really fun to start introducing some of these things to the hospital that's just not used to it. And, you know, I got to do that in the last year with a new hospital that had never had an IR, and people are just blown away. So I, I want to hear your experience, like How did you change it? You got there. How did you build it to where it is now?
1: So I made some good decisions. and made some bad decisions to get where we are now. I'd recommend if anyone wants to do it right, they go listen to um, Dr. Alan Sogg's interview with Jacob Fleming, also a back table production, where he talks through all his recommendations for practice building. And if I had a time machine and could have listened to that, I would have done better. (laughs) But as it was, I did some of those things he suggested well. My successes were basically things he recommended and my failures were things he warned about Uh, doing or not doing that I, you know, again, just didn't appreciate the ramifications. So what I did was very simple. I showed up and I asked for time to talk at every single practice, grand rounds, anything. I said, give me any time you'll give me. I want to be there and I want to talk to the surgeons, the hospitalists, the primary care doctors, put me in front of a group. And I just want to tell them all the things we can do so that at least even if they can't remember everything, they can get know who I am and call me and we can keep talking and so I did, like two a week for a month. I think I did wow. some sort of talking, some sort of presentation to the various groups in the hospital. Hey, here's what I can do. You know, you guys have been doing great. Here's some things I can do. Please call me if I can help you. Here's my cell phone number. Just just call me anytime, day or night. Just if you need to talk to me, just talk to me. I, I you know went full tilt, which I paid for, but it's what it took. And the piece of advice that I wish I had had was to not go quite so hard to start because I thought it was going to be a trickle and I was prying IR like needs out of the community, but actually it was a dam that was ready to burst. And I just, I just made a little crack. And then all of a sudden it was overwhelming the amount of demands I went. We went from doing maybe five or six things a day to quickly doing 12 to 18 cases a day with that still same five FTEs. And it was, you know, it was so exhausting. So we, we started hiring more staff and trying to restructure and do everything. But um, yeah, it, it was just, I showed up, I knocked really loudly. I gave them a, a big talk about everything I could do. And then people started taking advantage of some of it. Usually the things that seem um, most straightforward. There's only one surgeon who does any kyphoplasty. So I got a, a ton of kyphoplasties up front. And then the other big service line we started right away is there was a interventional cardiologist named Ashken Karimi. Who has since left and yeah, works up in Northern Virginia, but he's phenomenal. And he reached out to me when I started and said, Hey, I really have an interest in complex venous work and PEs. Would you yes. be willing to work with me to start a like our own little PERT team? And let's start doing acute PE and DVT intervention together. And I, you know, I was a little, honestly, a little skeptical about going into kind of a collaboration with an interventional cardiologists. Sure. So I said, Sure, let's, let's kind of do some stuff and figure it out. And I got to meet Ashkan and see his skills firsthand. And he is, technically fantastic, great clinician. And I was like, oh man, I just, I just won the jackpot. I have this incredible clinician who's going to help me build this line out of nothing. And I won't even have to do all the work because he's going to split it with me. And so we basically just started with, I started basically with kaifo a kaifo service line that grew pretty rapidly and this um, complex VTE service line. And that was kind of our, the first six months. That's basically all I did besides the, the, the light IR work.
0: Yeah, man, you so you took the words out of my mouth about You know, going in big. And first of all, in your defense, you know, it, I think it would be hard to, you know, start an IR practice and, and not go heavy at the beginning. I mean, you tell everybody this stuff is there and then they call. It's like, well, you know, we can do it in a few months. No, I, I I think, you know, I think that's probably how I would have done it. I actually was going to share my story later on, you know, and I was going to ask you some of the things you would have done differently. Actually, that, that was the same thing for me. When I started my first job, I went so hard trying to, convince everybody to send me patients for everything, that when I started the job I'm in now, I, I waited, you know, I waited, you know, for let's say, you know, the urologist, for example, I didn't just immediately start asking them to send me prostates, now I waited until they got to know me because for me it wasn't, you know, in terms of the volume that I'd be getting, it was that I, one of the mistakes I made in my first job was was immediately just reaching these doctors and and, and trying to get them to send me things that, that maybe, you know, competing with them, you know, prostates as an example, but, you know, also ablations and like, who the hell is this guy? I don't know. I don't know you. So now, you know, for my, my current job, I, I waited, I did a lot of the inpatient work and, and the outpatient consults that were for anybody and, and got to know him before I really started going after some of these other things. So to take it, you know, in another direction, let's talk about, you know, after you were able to build this, how did you, how did you approach getting equipment? You know, I mean, did you just ask for everything at once or, you know, a lot of these are are kind of niche pieces of equipment for a single procedure, for example. How did you do that? How did you get equipment?
1: Great question. So again, I feel very fortunate. Administration was very supportive. And I, to start, I said, what is it you want me to do on day one? And they're like, well, we want you to be able to do acute bleeding interventions, including tips. And I said, all right. So I gave them a list of everything I would need to feel like I could. Do you know acute GI or pulmonary bleeds? You know whatever visceral bleeding, and and tips. You know I said I need I do them with ice. I, that's how I learned it at University of Washington, and I never want to go back. Despite all the ice naysayers out there, it just feels like cheating. And they got everything for me. And they're like, yeah, that's this is what we want you to do. I told them, and I told them what uh, I needed, and they just they just gave it to me. And that pretty much persisted for the first nine months. That anytime there was a new service line or new something. I wanted to talk about. I had to do a presentation, a small thing for our value analysis team about what it's going to do and what I expect to happen. But in general, virtually everything I asked for in the first six or nine months was approved with little back and forth. And after that, it became much more about showing why I would need this additional equipment. And, and throughout all of it for two years, I've been extremely satisfied with administration's willingness to believe me when I say yes, we have this, but this is better, or I need this, or we're going to, this will open up that. And for the most part, I'm very fortunate. I have not had to go head to head about, you know, spending with my hospital.
0: Good, man. That's awesome. Uh, what about in terms of training your staff? I mean, that, I've, I've had to do that before too, and it's just hard to take somebody, you know, who has no experience with this and, and say, all right, we're going to do this emergent case. What was your process like?
1: It was a lot of learning by doing. I have yeah. uh, three techs uh, who've been with me since the start, Dale, Jen, and Lori. I want to call them out because they've just been you know, rocks for me. They, they were very honest that they didn't know how to do most of the stuff that I was talking about yeah. doing, but they've been willing to learn and willing to put up with my nonsense and all the weird things I do. And we just kind of did them together. And I did a lot of the kind of back table tech work with them, teaching them little things about managing, you know, microcatheters, things that they have not used in really years since, and they've changed dramatically since the last time they used them. I, you know, I had to do a lot of the tech work myself to get started to get them comfortable and understand how I like things and what I could teach them. And I was, again, very fortunate University of Washington, really good about making the fellows get very fluent on operating their equipment. Um, their own equipment, and that was extremely helpful. That I wasn't tech reliant to manipulate all of the, the AI and everything else. And we just we just kind of did it as a team. You know, myself, my three techs. We we just kept trying to do it together and got better and faster. And I feel very lucky because when we started out, even we were I was on call basically every day, and they're on Q 3 24 hour call, and that was basically how it was for the first until the end of twenty twenty one and during that time we had a lot of a lot of learning opportunities a lot of a lot of things to do but you know we just we just took each one as it came and it i feel like overwhelmingly we we succeeded and i think that's a lot about just being willing to keep working and keep figuring things out and, and their willingness to learn with me
0: You know, you brought up an important point about taking call. And and one of the questions that, you know, I have for you is you're the solo IR guy. You're the one guy that can do this. How does that work, you know, when you're not on call, you know? Because one of the issues, you know, that I've run into is, is, you know, if I want to start a procedure, you know, at the hospital, especially for, you know, an inpatient or ER, you know, something that's relatively emergent. And if I'm the only one in the hospital who could do that procedure, you know, there become issues when I'm not on call. And so I just want to, you know, kind of hear how you approach that, you know, say somebody has a GI bleed or something and you're not on.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So it's gone through three iterations and this was probably another thing where I could have done it better if I had more experience when I started. But coming out of fellowship, I had all that energy, excited for a first job, excited to make an actual paycheck (laughs) and feel compensated for my time. So for the first, from the time I started July until basically Thanksgiving, I was practically on-call 24-7 every day. I felt like I had to be available to build these connections with these referrers and help out and get everyone used to it. So even if I wasn't doing cases every day of the week or every weekend, I was getting calls, like two to five calls every day as people are like, wow. hey, can can you do this? Or hey, if I admit this person, can you take care of this tomorrow? Very few of them were for emergent overnight or weekend cases, but a lot of it was just kind of testing the waters. Okay. I want to admit this patient with the expectation that you could do X. Is that cool? And over, you know, it was, it was easy and, and I don't mind those calls, but after a while it became, you know, not having any time off became challenging. So I sat down with administration around Thanksgiving, I think of 2020, and we kind of negotiated back and forth a little bit. And then the agreement became, okay, one person can't cover a call for this hospital all the time. So what we'll do is sure. any week I'm here, From Monday at 5 a.m. till Friday at 5 p.m., I'm just on call. And my staff's on call already, Q24, because they're covering the vascular surgeons and the OR. So we'll do call cases Monday through Fridays. And on the weekend, you know, I'll get those off and they'll either hold people to the weekend if they can, or if they're concerned, they'll call me or they'll transfer them. And we have a number of hospitals, including UVA, within 45 minutes or an hour of transfer that would have IR services that could cover any gaps. And we did that from December of twenty twenty till the end of twenty twenty one. That was basically the the structure of call and it was it was a lot. And we I did it and my staff did it as long as we could, but by the end of 2021, it was too much. We were all burning out, we were exhausted, we were kind of all miserable. And so I went back to administration and said, look, I'm trying to do call for more than a person. No, no one person practice would be on call these times. We got to figure something out and we've kind of negotiated it down so that calls right now, it's, it's, I'm always available, but they're very, very understanding if I'm not able to come in and do everything overnight and other things like that. We have a very kind of flexible call situation now where we really try to hold things off and do them only during kind of the business hours just to preserve our staff because they're so it's, it's me. And now we've gone up to five techs, but we're just a really small department and it's, very tiring, and administration has been very supportive about protecting us because we are small. That they've let us kind of scale back how much we're actually doing after hours to uh, make sure. it much less exhausting for all of us.
0: That's fair. So Doug, let's talk about your clinic. How, when did you start it? How many people are involved? How's it worked? Uh, great question. So, when
1: I started, it was me and a HIPAA compliant spreadsheet, and yeah. I would have one of my, you know, two FTs of nurses room the patient in a spare room we had nearby and I would see them, you know, do consult in that room. And then I'd write up the note and then I would do all everything else myself. I had to keep track of them and all their follow-up and everything else. I just did all myself for first. Yes. Oh, it was brutal. It was the first nine months. No, actually about a year, I think it was, my clinic was me in a room and a spreadsheet that I just kept track of everything I could. And that's, uh, that it went well, you know, I was able to start building stuff and seeing patients and doing everything and it was good enough. And then we got busier and I was able to, again, ask admin, say, Hey, I'm, I have this slowly growing outpatient practice. And I would really appreciate it if we get some more FTEs. And by this time I'd been doing a lot of business elsewise, So they approved right. me to get a number more FTEs in the department and then a dedicated FTE to assist me in running the clinic, which is my LPN Allison. She's great. And we, you know, we're the tag team. We see everybody we work you know and, and keep track of everything ourselves and yeah you just do it by you know blood sweat and tears at the start and uh to me it was very important that i start with the clinic before i start doing the big cases that's good for you everyone feels like i'm a clinician providing a service i'm not just a guy with some needles and some toys so i was you know i think my first clinic patient was in the first month or two was my first outpatient consult and I probably have, I would say somewhere between you know three and ten a week. It's it's a little flexible what exactly happens, how many consults I end up seeing in a week. But it's been a lot of time and a lot of really commitment more than anything. Just feeling like I this is important that we do this and we just put in the resources. But I think it's paid off and I think it's done a lot to something you said earlier, establish trust with my referrers. I think you know when you hit it hard and you come out of fellowship and you're really excited, people want to send you stuff, but they're a little leery of you. And kind of like you alluded to, I had to do a lot of time and effort to convince, particularly I'll use my urologist colleagues who I work with a ton, that you can trust me and I can do ablations and I'll have the follow-up and your patients will get the care. And you're not losing business to me. We're taking a care of patients together. And that probably, I think the most success with that has to do with one, I've had a clinic the whole time seeing patients so that it wasn't just like um, their patients were showing up. And I was talking to them, and then ablating something. They felt like they were sending them to another physician. And then, two, wow. I had put in the time. I I do PCNLs with one of the urologists. You know, yeah, me too. I think typically one or two a week every week. And I did that for six months before I got my first like kidney ablation referral from them. And Absolutely. I think it's it's just what you have to do. You got to show them that you're going to be there. They can trust you. You can do other things well, and then you'll take good care of their patients. And then then they start. Kind of feeling you out, and at first it was slow, and then it quickly sped up and you know from the first referral we got the second week of january twenty twenty one until the end of january twenty twenty until january twenty twenty two we ended up doing fifty six ablations, and most of that has to do with wow, not doing ablations, not talking about it, not bothering people, but saying I can do them and then doing everything else and showing them that you are a team player and you're going to do all the things they need, not just the fun stuff. And that was Man, kind of the magic recipe for me to break in.
0: I don't think you could have put that any better. I, I completely agree. And and that was one thing I did differently with my second job was, you know, for the stuff like that, where, you know, there are other treatments for certain things and you know, for something like that, like, I mean, it it really is a great thing to build your reputation with those people first, show them you're going to do good work. And then, you know, when I, when I have a new referrer who sends me something like that their patients get my cell because i don't want them calling the the referring doctor's office for questions that that i can answer myself you know i mean you 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 really got to do your part if you're going to get them to to keep sending that work i think it's also a really great example uh and a good lesson for some of our trainees out there of of how to work with hospital administration you know i mean if 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 you didn't ask, if you didn't go to the administration and ask for support to have a clinic, you'd still be doing this on your own. And I had the same experience with my first job where I was my own clinic nurse. I mean, I'd bring them back to the reading room for quote unquote clinic and I had to keep track of everything on my phone. But uh, you asked, and you know, I mean, they came through and you had a good argument to make.
1: Yeah, I think that was one thing that was tough and I'm still learning about, is how to interface with administration with in general i think administration has a difficult time with radiology and then doubly so with interventional radiology what we do is a little bit of a mystery we're very needed but the the fruits of our labor are less apparent we make a lot of like soft dollars for administration because people don't need transfers because we can our surgeons can do more complex things and then we back them up and take care of the complications when they happen and it's sometimes hard to show all of the things that the hospital now is able to do safely because you're there and you're backing up the endoscopists and the surgeons and everyone else so that we don't have to worry that we're going to run out of things to help this patient. And then all of a sudden we're going to have an unstable bleeding patient or or some sort of complication we can't handle and it's transferred. And that's the number one thing the hospital wants to avoid. So I think that upfront, I was too hesitant to talk to them and I should have asked for clinic support much earlier. And then I still haven't got to where I'm asking too much, but even now, I'm finally just starting to loosen up two years into this relationship that has been overall very good, being a little bit more willing to advocate for myself and a little less kind of just like grinning and bearing it. I think that is still definitely a work in progress for me, figuring out how to balance these two things.
0: I mean, when you start out, you're coming right out of fellowship and you just don't know. I I mean, I was scared to ask for anything because I I just didn't know that that was how you go about getting the stuff you need. And it it took me a couple of years until I figured that out. You know, I mean, what's the worst they're going to do? They're going to say no.
1: Yeah. And as long as you have a working relationship and you you want them to say yes, sometimes you want to have some things that they can say yes to because then they feel like they're not always saying no. And then exactly. you can show them, oh, look, you said yes. Now I look at all these things I did for you. So then it makes the next yes a little easier. And so I think yeah. it was smart to ask less in the beginning. I think I probably asked for too little upfront, but I think overall we're at a, at a much better balance. And if admin has learned that if I'm coming to them and really requesting something, I've I've put it through the time and right. try to do without it. And I'm only
0: asking now because we
1: we really need it to move the next you step, whatever it. that is.
0: Exactly. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and one of the things that that I really like about how you're doing this is that you don't turn your nose up at some of these procedures that, you know, a lot of people, you know, they talk about paras and thores and abscess drains, and, you know, they turn their noses up at this and say, oh, well, that's not real IR. But I, I, I firmly disagree. I, I think that you know this is a large part of our practice and not everything is going to be you know uh, a Y90 or you know a complex PAD case like you know i think everybody has things in their job that that are not necessarily their favorite and i think it's an important service to offer do you think that doing those procedures you know and the way you've approached it by just doing them and not complaining about it do you think that's helped you get other work
1: absolutely i think that if i had come into the job with anything but a Thank you, sir. May I have another kind of approach. I think this job would not have worked for me. And I don't think it'll work for the hospital because even now, if you just go by volume, most of what I'm doing is light IR or not real IR, but I'm yeah. doing an ablation or two every week. I'm doing a kypho every week. I do probably a taste or two, some sort of liver directed work every month. Yeah. Or, you know, some things we do less, you know, GI bleeds come and go, but we're doing those. And, I'm averaging right right now, like a tips a year uh, at our little hospital, you know, we, there's real work there and I'm getting to do it. And I think that if I wasn't doing paras and thoras and ports and lines and everything else, then I never would have made the connections to the referrers to honestly convince them that I'm an IR they can trust, you know, kind of going back to our earlier point that you do paras and the patients tell their hepatologists, their oncologists, like, you know he's a really thoughtful physician. He takes time. He does it well. I like him. You know that doesn't seem like much, but after a few of those, then they're like, you know what, I could send this, you know, this port to the surgeons, but let me send it Doug's way. And then, you know, I do a few good ports for him, or right? and I fix some maybe some other ports that aren't working as well, and then I'll send. You know what? Actually, maybe we should send him this soft tissue sarcoma for palliation for a complex ablation and. You know, kind of down that road. One of the best things I did was connect with palliative care. I could say, hey, what are the things that are toughest for you to handle? What are the hardest patients that you have to to work with? And overwhelmingly, it was patients with with chronic pain issues towards the end of life. And I said that I'd be willing to learn and do a bunch of pain injections. I, hey, I also do ablation. I also do tunneled asperas or pleurxes. I do things like that. But you know, right. there's there's a big range here. Let's let's start working together and that was, that was the key. I started, I taught myself how to do, you know, I had done a few, but not really, wasn't really facile at doing transraminal steroid injections or, you know, epidural steroid wow. injections or other random nerve blocks. I had had some experience, but not much. And I worked really hard at learning them and doing them well so that when palliative would send me these simple things, I would get them turned around really fast and back and they would, their patients would tell them how much better they felt. And so that just, you know, snowballs. I think I think that that's how you have to build IR from the ground up when you're coming into a place with no IR. But even if you were to show up in a small practice, I think the similar things apply that you you have to be grateful for those little things and do them not just adequately, but, but take the time to do them well, because it's your reputation is what gives you your practice. It's not your skill. No one has any idea how good or bad an IR but they are convinced that their patients will tell them, I spend a lot of time talking to them. Every one of my consults for a complex issue is an hour that I block out of my day. When right. I have a patient with a cancer diagnosis, that's an hour I'm going to block for them to where I can talk right. with them about my procedures and other things and everything. So they never feel rushed so that in my mind, when they go back to their referring oncologist or surgeon, they they have reasons to brag about me. I spend an hour with them talking to them, you know, explaining what we can do, what might not work, what you know we should think about, things like this. And- you know, I think that's just that the key is you just got to put in the time and effort and you know that you're going to get delayed gratification. This, for example, in the past three weeks after just doing tons of pain injections for a year, I had three really complex, interesting soft tissue lesion, you know, masses to uh, metastatic disease that was all intractable pain, tried radiation, tried everything else. They all end up in my lap and I got to do some really, really cool cases to help these patients with great results. And you know, that's why you do you teach yourself to do transferenal steroid injections Man. when you're starting out so that the, the same doctors then are like, I really trust this IR. Let me send them harder, complex stuff, or let me just call and ask if there's anything you could do. And that's, you know, you just want people to think of you. You want people to have a good opinion of you and then it it kind of goes from there
0: man I could not agree more I think you you put it perfectly and I think it's it's really critical for you know trainees to hear that message when they're going out you shouldn't be above anything any procedure you know you don't need to be above it and you need to do the little things well and uh, and you're right I mean this is how you build a reputation
1: the other thing that is invaluable to building a practice and and growing your own skill set especially as a young trainee is the IR community particularly on social media I think that more than, I mean, and I, I say this, more than all the crazy complex Venus work I did with Jeff Chick at University of Washington or all the ablations I did with Jason Inercelli or Damien Dupuy Brown, the thing that has allowed me to continue to practice independently with no other IRs to ask their opinion real time with nothing else is the IR Twitter community who oh. has so educational. I, I I I'm a huge fan. People who are so accessible. Poor Dr. Sog gets twitter dms from me oh, several good. times a month asking his opinions on random things I he made the mistake him of DMing recently
0: once. i texted him about a case recently and i found him well i, I found him through that and through backtable uh, i i completely agree i mean i i learned more from from ir twitter than I, ha- I do from any other resource except for backtable of course
1: yeah, of course except for the backtable i think <laughs> the one thing i if it were up to me every case someone would post on twitter I love the clot pictures. I just like seeing what people are doing. I, I want to see everyone to have every product they use every in a, in a review. I want to say I loved using I won't say any specific products, but I loved using X product and here's why or, or, or I used this, but it didn't do this well. you know for me who doesn't have someone to turn to with wealth you know years of experience to ask, who I have to ask everything in advance or that if I think of it or have to figure it out on the fly, I love when people are posting all the fun things and interesting work they're doing and what they're using for to do it. And I don't see that as them you know, shilling for a no, company. I, I see that as they are allowing people like me who don't have colleagues to just turn to every you know task for help. You're letting me know what's out there and what I need to be thinking about. And there've been so many products I have used or switched to or switched from that have been partially or significantly influenced by the uh, Twit IR community. It was 100. You know, it's just fantastic, and I, I wish I wish we did more. I want to see all the clock pictures. I want to see every every case you're doing. I hope every IR tweets every single one.
0: Yeah. So, what's on the horizon from here, Doug? You know, what do you want to see your practice change? Like, how do you want to change what you guys are doing? Is you know, is there any you know area you'd like to expand in terms of what you're offering?
1: Great question. I think for me, it's not so much about what I'm doing, but I want colleagues to do it with. You know, the, okay. the hospital agrees that to support our 210-ish bed hospital. You know, we need three full-time IRs and we definitely have the business to manage. And I'm I'm constantly booked out three to four weeks. It's impossible for me to ever really make any progress just with how much demand there is. You know, I want to have some other ambitious people join me, people who want to build stuff. And, you know, I'm already doing, I already have a nice like ambroid service line. We have a very well-developed ablation service line at this point. You know, we're doing DVTs and PEs. We're, We're doing... Liver work, we're, we have all the boxes except for PAD, which I'll be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of. And I don't, I'm not sad that I'm not doing <laughs> it. But I have all these great service lines that I'm just trying to hold on to. And I would just love more than anything for, you know, a couple more folks to join me in this to build this out even more. I think that from a perspective of available services, I'm really happy with the work we've done in the last two years. From a perspective of staffing, I feel like I would love to have a few more FTEs. I think right now we're up to, to 11 and we're shooting for like 14. And I would love to have someone else join me and bring their own flavor because uh, I've done, I feel like I've done as much as I can as a one person act to get the ground floor kind of firmly set. And now it's, it's, you know, bigger and better and everything else uh, from here. And that's what I think at least Augusta Health needs. That's why I think after you get that foundation in place, any young practice, you just want, more people who are interested in growing something and shaping something. And I think that's that's the biggest hurdle is me trying to find a few, few people who maybe are also a little naive like I was and, and don't think about how <laughs> much of an undertaking it is and are a little blissfully unaware and want to kind of join me and I'll try to help them through it. Or they'll come in like a rock star and make it look easy. And then I'll wonder what I was messing around with for two years. But you know, I think that's, that's what I hope for my practice now is to, to build something us to health that's bigger than me, it's multiple IRs, and that will hopefully last a while so that, you know, eventually one day we can, you know, start competing with the, the big dogs in the area
0: like UVA or, or VCU who are just, you know, outstanding IRs with really big practices. For our listeners out there, you can find Doug on Twitter, you can message me and I'll put you in touch. Doug, that's about all I got. Is there anything else that you wanted to discuss that I didn't cover?
1: I, I have to say that you guys don't get enough credit. All the different hosts and, and brilliant minds that make BackTable possible. I think this has been. This is what got me engaged with the IR twenty community, listen to BackTable and wanting to get involved in the the social media landscape. That and Jeff Chick tweeting every single case we did, all fellowship.
0: Yeah. <laughs> every single unbelievable, mind bending case at
1: some point you're just like jeff how do you keep doing this please like make it stop just give me one day where i just like do ports and i don't build someone a new leg out of you know robots and tissue paper. it's just bizarre things that he gets us doing and it was great education awesome. but um but besides jeff and tweeting I feel like the back table is just such a huge resource. And I just want to thank you guys for for doing it and letting me be a little part of it. I think this has just done so much for the community.
0: Thanks, man. We really love hearing that. And thank you for sharing your time with this with us. This is fantastic. And again, as always, thanks to our listeners. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dond, Michael Barraza,
1: and Ali Behetti.
0: Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodgson, Josh McWhirter,
1: and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and Transcript, support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang.
0: Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.